tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 49. My name is James Scully. Happy New Year's Eve, and in honor of the last day of 2016, we present to you an up-close look at how New Year's Eve was handled on radio during what's come to be known as the golden age of radio between the 1930s and 1962. If you've been enjoying recent episodes of Breaking Walls, you can subscribe to our podcast by going to iTunes and searching for The Wall Breakers. You can also follow us on SoundCloud.com slash TheWallBreakers. We'd love if you did both of those things. And if you rate and review us on iTunes, it'll help with the iTunes algorithm and more people will discover breaking walls. You can also find five years worth of global artist profiles, vintage photos, interviews, editorials, and a full archive of Breaking Walls episodes at TheWallBreakers.com. This is the second Radio Chronicle we've done here on Breaking Walls. Prior to the advent of television, radio was the main source of entertainment in American homes. Before families gathered around the television to watch the ball drop in Times Square, they gathered around the radio and heard the crowds over the air. Along with the countdown, many other shows ranging from news bulletins to situation comedies to thrillers, westerns, and detective shows would all have New Year's themes. So after this brief pause, be ready to go back in time and listen to portions of what was on the air on radio three generations ago on New Year's Eve. Our earliest clip was broadcast January 1st, 1939, while our most recent aired on December 31st, 1961. program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Kenny Baker, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens the program with No Wonder. Well, here we are at the beginning of another year, and Jell-O wants to send greetings to all of you. And we've received a letter that makes a swell New Year's greeting for us. It's from a woman who's been using Jell-O year in and year out for the past 37 years. She is Mrs. C.C. Brown of Huntington, West Virginia. And listen to what she writes. We bought our first package of Jell-O in December, 1902. We lived in the country then and made... You are listening to audio from the Jell-O program, starring Jack Benny, originally broadcast at 7 p.m. on January 1st, 1939, on NBC's The Red Network. The cast included Don Wilson as announcer, Phil Harris as the wisecracking bandleader, Benny's wife, Sadie Marks, as Mary Livingston, Eddie Anderson as Rochester, with Kenny Baker as the singer and comedic stooge. The Jack Benny program evolved from vaudeville roots to become the most famous American comedy show of the first half of the 20th century, with Benny enjoying one of the longest continuous runs of any comedian in dramatic radio history. On this particular New Year's episode, the gang rings in the New Year. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this being the first day of the New Year, it behooves me to introduce the star of this program in a manner befitting his dignity and position. Well... He is a man whose illustrious character and many fine qualities have my sincere admiration. Oh, Don, please. A man whose lovable nature and unselfish devotion to others... Say, Jack. Quiet, Mary. I want to hear this. Go ahead, Don. Whose unselfish devotion to others has endeared him to the hearts of his public. How true. So I bring you none other than that sparkling, scintillating, outstanding personality... That's not me. I'll kill myself. Jack Benny. Jack Benny. 
Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, one of the sweetest guys I've ever met. <laughs> and Don, I want to thank you for that beautiful introduction. You know, as a rule, a man has to be dead before he gets such a lovely tribute. Well, I wrote it just before the broadcast while you were lying down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't expect me to get up, eh? Well, I am pretty tired after last night. Hey, by the way, Don, what did you do New Year's Eve? Did you have any fun? Oh, I had a swell time, Jack. Simply wonderful. That's good. First, I took my wife to a movie, and then we went to the Coconut Grove to celebrate. Well, that was nice. First the picture, and then the Coconut Grove. I suppose you danced a lot. No, my wife left her shoes in the movie. <laughs> well, there's nothing like relaxing at the cinema. I often slip my shoes off myself, but I'm getting so absent-minded, I'm not going to do it anymore. You're not. No, the other night at Grauman's Chinese, I was clear down to my underwear before the usher stopped me. <laughs> oh, it was embarrassing. I can imagine. Well, tell me, Jack, how did you spend New Year's Eve? Any excitement last night? Well, I had a fairly good time, Don. I took Mary to the Wilshire Bowl, you know, where Phil Harris is playing. Oh, you did? Yeah. Say, you had a pretty good time in my place last night, didn't you, Jackson? Yes, I had a nice time, Philson. <laughs> But as long as it was your place, you might have seen that I got a decent table. What are you talking about? Your table wasn't so far away. It wasn't. I was so far from the bandstand, I couldn't even see the circles under your eyes. <laughs> the fine table. Oh, you're exaggerating, Jack. There were a lot of people sitting behind you. Listen, Phil, the only people sitting behind me were from Pasadena. And they were home at the time. <laughs> What a New Year's Eve. Well, Jack, maybe Phil couldn't help it. New Year's Eve's a big night, and after all, first come, first serve. That's what burns me up, Don. I was the first one in the place. When I got there so early, the manager asked me to help blow up the balloon. <laughs> How do you like that? Well, you got paid for it, didn't you? That's not the point. <laughs> Now, let me tell you another thing, Phil. I don't mind my table being far away, but the next time you seat me behind a post, please see that there's a knot hole in it. <laughs> behind a post? What are you talking about? Oh, never mind. Hello, Jack. Happy New Year. One of Jack Benny's longest-running gags, and something perfect for radio, was his atrocious playing of the violin, only outdone by his own insistence at his prowess playing it. This gag helped jumpstart Benny's comedic feud with fellow radio comic Fred Allen. In 1936, after Benny promised a playing of the bee on a future show, Allen remarked on his own show that a vendor of desserts who has a sideline called by some, a radio program, announced to an apprehensive world that he would murder a bee. This dire news has seeped into every nook and cranny of this country, and I understand citizens are fleeting these shores by the thousands rather than submit to the torture. Allen then brought out a 10-year-old boy to give a better performance of the bee while mocking Benny and simultaneously giving him a rudimentary lesson in playing the violin. Jack Benny, whose show was situated on the West Coast while Allen's was in New York, happened to be listening to the East Coast feed of NBC that evening, and instantly a comedic feud was born. On the December 31st, 1944 episode of the Jack Benny program, Jack resolves to be friends with Fred Allen in 1945. Listen, kids, now that you brought it up, that was a fine present you all chipped in and gave me. Hmm. A gift certificate for a dinner at the thrifty drugstore. <laughs> the meal was good, but I kept slipping off the stool all the time. <laughs> anyway, kids, Christmas is over, and after our program, I want you all to come over to my house and see the new year in. Boy, am I going to have fun. Oh, sure, sure. What do you mean, oh, sure, sure? You'll have fun all right. You'll drink three bottles of Coca-Cola, two 7-Ups, and one Dr. Pepper. Then ten minutes later, you'll put on a lady's hat and holler, Yippee! What? Then you'll have two fingers of Dad's old-fashioned root beer and Rochester will have to carry you up to bed. <laughs> what are you kids talking about? You're the only one I ever saw that drinks champagne out of a spoon. Now, listen, kids, I may be that way all year, but when it comes to New... Oh, hello, Larry. Hello, Mr. Benny. Happy New Year. Same to you. I'm glad you got here, kid. It's time for your song. Okay, but can I tell you about my New Year's resolution first? Sure, kid. What is it? Well, I made a resolution never to ask you for a raise unless you gave it to me voluntarily. Well, well, uh, whatever made you think of that? It's on page 84 of his contract. 
It is not. Anybody that works for me can ask for a raise any time they want to. I can't help it if the government froze salaries. You know, you're not a bad little refrigerator yourself. <laughs> all right, Phil, all right. But the next time you want a raise, ask for it yourself. Don't send Alice and the kids around. <laughs> And where do they get those ragged old clothes? <laughs> what, a, what a corny act they put on. Say, Jack, what? getting back to resolutions, it wouldn't hurt if you made a few yourself. Mary, I've already made a resolution. You'd be surprised if I told you what it is. No kidding, Jackson. What is it? Well, I made a resolution that from now on, I'm going to be friends with Fred Allen and never say anything against him. Ah, uh, Jack, that's really swell. You're really being magnanimous after all the things Alan has said about you. Oh, Don, it was all in the spirit of fun. Alan was the nice guy. He never meant those things. It was just for laughs. Yeah, and... you're right, Jackson. But I'll never forget the laugh Alan got when he said you squeeze a nickel so hard you get milk out of the buffalo. He <laughs> <laughs> was sharp that night, that kid was. Oh, did, did Alan say that? Yeah. <laughs> what a sense of humor, really. <laughs> Forget the time Alan said that you're so bow-legged and your girl is so knock-kneed. When you dance together, you look like a mix master. <laughs> what a sense of humor he used to have. What do you mean, used to have? Well, that guy's mentality is so low, he has to lie down to think. Jack, your resolution... And with those bags under his eyes, his face looks like an old pair of pants with the pockets inside out. Jack, your resolution... I've still got till 12 o'clock. Kid, well, I think I'm some more. I hope I get some beauties before midnight. Believe me. Of course, this feud was purely a work. And behind the scenes, these two were friends with a great deal of respect for each other's strong points comedically. Benny's was his sense of comedic timing, and Alan's was his satirical wit. Both heavily influenced many comics that followed. In an interview recorded with Chuck Shaden on September 3rd, 1970, Jack Benny reflected on his feud with Fred Allen. Oh, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> That's the old, the old story. And what about the, the famous uh, Benny-Allen feud? Was there really, in fact, a feud? Well, only a friendly feud, of course. We didn't plan it, though. It came up by accident. Fred said something one night on his show, and I picked it up the next week, then he picked it up, then I picked it up. And we were in the feud for about eight months before we even did anything about it. And uh, the feud went on until he passed away. Well, that was that was really a, yeah. a great thing. Uh, sure it was. Uh, you crossed over uh, oh, God, every week almost, sure, didn't you? Sure, And then we would go on each other's shows. He was probably the best comedian, the, the best one to ever have a feud with. Because you know, he was the funniest. <laughs> he was a great writer, that's why. Great wit. In the early 1980s, on John Dunning's Denver-based radio show called Old Time Radio, Dunning, by the way, is an author and former MC, and also wrote the encyclopedia of Old Time Radio called On the Air. Anyway, Dunning had Dennis Day, former Jack Benny program star, on the show, and Dennis spoke with John about the feud between Benny and Alan, and also what it was like to travel cross-country by plane in those days. How well did you know Fred Allen? I know you guys were on the opposite oh, coast. Oh, Fred. He was a, a, a lovely man. I knew him uh, from through the Jack Benny program. I'd had uh, dinner with he and his wife, Portland, many times in New York when I'd be visiting there, and saw him uh, whenever he'd be out here. I'd see him uh, quite a number of times. He was a, a great uh, comedic genius, again, because he wrote all of the Allen Valley. That was all of his. He would write all of that. And uh, he was really a, a brilliant man, a brilliant writer, and a, a, a satirist, I think, uh, on, on life and on, on uh, our, our mores and everything else. So um, his really a great man. I'm sorry. Oh, his friendship with Jack Benny was... Uh, um, it was there was of course no real feud. Oh no! Uh, but they being uh, being at opposite ends of the country, Fred Allen always worked from New York, right? Yes, right. Uh, the the friendship that they had was never really as as close as some writers have made it out to be, was it? Oh yes, I think they were. Oh, they both had great respect for one another. But I mean, they weren't intimates like they didn't they didn't get together all the time and they were. They oh were... no! But uh, I think they did when they go to New York. Like if Jack went to New York, he'd get together with Fred. Uh, 
was on his program many times, and vice versa. Fred come out here, he'd be on uh, the Jack Benny, which he did not come out that that often, you know, because he did not like California. He did not not like Hollywood. He hated it, you know. That was a pretty good trip in those days, wasn't it? I mean, you had oh, to yeah. get on a train and go for what? Well, that's three days and four nights, usually. So that's a long trip. I remember the first time I went uh, back to New York after I'd first joined the Jack Benny show, and we flew. I flew on a DC-3, and it was 23 and a half hours. You know, you go 375 miles, and boom, you land. And then you wait around for 20 minutes or a half hour. Then you take off and go another 375 miles. And that's the way you hopped your way across the uh, country. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few short hours, it will be 1951, and another year will have passed into history. Yes, as the saying goes, time and tide wait for no man. So now we bring you a man who hasn't tried his luck with tide, but who has licked time, and here he is, Jack Benny. Thank you, thank you. Hello again. This is Jack Benny talking. Now, Don, step away from the microphone and let Phil get on. But, Jack... Don, I said step away from the microphone and let Phil on. But, Jack, why do you want Phil on so early? Because this is New Year's Eve, and if we don't get him on fast, we may not have him at all. (laughs) Believe me. Now, wait a minute, Jackson. I heard what you said... Jack Benny's playful chiding of band leader Phil Harris was a show staple as was his confusion and playful annoyance with singer Dennis Day. Mary, I heard the program where you said grass reek instead of grease rag. Mm-hmm. How could you make a mistake like that when your sister babe runs one? <laughs> you know, Mary, one thing about your mother. Come in. Well, look who's here. Well, hello, Dennis. Do you mind if I sing my song right away? I'm in a hurry. In a hurry? What for? This New Year's Eve, Bob. I gotta keep rolling. What? Wanna have a quick one with me, Phil? Dana! Step aside, kid. Dennis, what's come over you? Pucker up, Liv. I'm gonna hang one on you. Dennis. Dennis. What happened to you? When I got off the bus, I bumped my head. Oh. It feels so good, I hope I can get the same bus going home. I hope so. It was a sunset bus. Look, look, Dennis. Once I did it on the Wiltshire bus. What a hangover. All right, all right. Now, hold it. Dennis, what did you say when you first came in here? Oh, I said, can I sing my song now? I'm in a hurry. Look, kid, I heard your song at rehearsal, and the orchestra was out of tune. Hold it, Scrooge. Hold it. Screw. Look, Jackson, you can stop being sarcastic because in 1951, I'm making a lot of changes to improve the band. I'm adding some new musicians. Really? Yep. I'm adding another pianist, two violinists, a clarinetist, a harpist, and a chiropodist. <laughs> a chiropodist? Yep. He was with Guy Lombardo for three years, two years with Wayne King, four years with Kay Kaiser. Phil... Phil, a chiropodist is someone who works on people's feet. He is? Certainly, don't you ask questions? Jackson, when a fella tells you he's Petrillo's cousin, we band leaders don't pin him down. <laughs> oh. Well, Phil, this new man will have a picnic with your band. They never wear shoes anyway. <laughs> Now, they can snap their toes when they roll those dice is beyond me. (laughs) How do you do? You know, boy, Phil, these boys of yours are absolutely amazing. 
National Broadcasting Company presents Radio City Playhouse, Attraction 67, Reflection, as written and directed by Harry W. Junkin. Dramatic anthologies, or what we would consider today something like a primetime soap opera, they were common during radio's golden age. This is the open for the 67th and final episode of the Radio City Playhouse, which originated from New York and was broadcast over NBC from July 3rd, 1948 until this date, January 1st, 1950. Harry W. Junkin. Thank you, Fred, and a very happy new year to everyone. Since the past is composed entirely of memories, and since the future has not yet happened, the present, perhaps, is nothing more than a nostalgic mingling of the two elements. Our story today concerns the past and the present of three very nice people. Their present, of course, like yours, is today, this day, New Year's Day, 1950. Here is Jan Minor as Anne Stratton with Bryna Rayburn and Bob Haig in Reflection, Attraction 67 on Radio City Playhouse. Perfect New Year's Day, but I'm going home. Oh, Maud, don't rush. Yes, stay for a while. Now, you're not that tired. I find your grandchildren rather exhausting. <laughs> was rather hectic, wasn't it? Mm. I think everybody had a good time. Uh, it's so wonderfully quiet now. Just the three of us together. 1950. 1950. <laughs> Hard to believe, isn't it? How long has it been, Maud? Thirty-two years. It's a long time for three people to be friends. Yes, it's a very long time. But here we are again. Maud and Peter and I. This is the 32nd time we've wished each other Happy New Year. I remember the first New Year's. It was 1918. You sailed for France that day, Peter. And I remember how bleak it was and how miserable I felt. We'd been married eight days and then you sailed for France. That was the day I met you, Maud. After his boat left, I wandered around in the rain, then went into some horrible, steamy little restaurant to have some coffee and get warm. And there you were, sitting at the table. Excuse me, would you pass the salt, please? Thank you. Oh, anything wrong? No. Oh, no. I suspect that what you need, dearie, is a drink. Women who eat all alone in third-rate restaurants on New Year's Day should get extremely drunk. No, it's just the, the rain and... Oh, look here, I'm sorry. Oh, it's none of my business. I'm just the Gabby type. I didn't mean to pry. Doesn't matter. Is it somebody in the war? My husband. Oh, I am sorry. I get used to it, I suppose. Oh, had, had you been married long? Eight days. Oh, then he isn't dead. Oh, no. He isn't dead. Oh. Why do you say oh like that? Well, I thought it was really something serious. Serious? If you'd been married for eight days and your husband went away to war, how would you feel about it? Pretty badly, I suppose. Hand me the sugar. Well, if you haven't been married, you can't imagine how you... You're not married, are you? No. Well, then. I'm a widow. Oh. He was in the first contingent. He was killed. Killed? Oh, no. Oh, for goodness sake, stop blubbering all over everything. <laughs> there are lots of other wives in the same case. How dare you talk to me like that? Who do you think you are? But I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm simply saying that there's no use bawling about it, especially in public. What do you do, anyway? Do? You work? No, no, I don't. Where are you from? Boston. You lived with your parents? An aunt. Going back to Boston? I guess so. I don't want to, but what else can I do? Work. But I've never worked in my life. I've no experience. You've got I... style. You're good-looking. 
Know anything about clothes? Oh, no. Don't answer me. You only know how to buy them, not sell them. Oh, incidentally, my name's Maud Arnett. I'm Ann Stratton. Well, how do you do, Ann? And Happy New Year. Listen to this show close. When Harry Junkin gets up there and he thanks everybody who worked on the show and thanks you, the viewing listener, there's a sense of poignance to his delivery. There's a sense of beauty because it's done live in studio while a live orchestra is playing the out music for the Radio City Playhouse. And we have now, 60-something years removed, the knowledge that this would be the last time that the Radio City Playhouse would ever broadcast an episode of anything. And this is how Harry Junkin wanted to sign off the air forever. We have that in our history. So many, many New Year's days, now with grandchildren. They were a little tiring, weren't they? We're back where we started now. Mary with her own family. Susan away at school. And the three of us getting slightly old. New Year's Day, 1950. 32 years of saying Happy New Year. And we really mean so much more. I wish we could find the words. Or I wish I could. Peter, the fire's out. Mm. Oh, so it is. You're practically asleep. No, not asleep. I've just been thinking with my eyes shut. I was thinking how long we've known each other. What a depressing thought. Maud. Peter? Yes. What, dear? Happy New Year. just heard Reflection, Attraction 67 on Radio City Playhouse. Jan Miner starred as Ann Stratton. Maud was Bryna Rayburn. Peter was Bob Haig. Other members of the cast included Rosemary Rice, Bill Lipton, and Joan Laser. The music was composed by Dr. Roy Shield and conducted by Norman Clothier. The script was written, directed, and produced by Harry W. Junkin. This is Harry Junkin again. On behalf of our cast, our engineer, Monroe J. Lawrence, our sound technician, John Powers, Norman Cotier, and the men in the orchestra, all of us connected with Radio City Playhouse, sincere good wishes for the best of everything in the coming year. Good afternoon, everybody. on NBC tonight, radio's outstanding dramatic program, Theater Guild on the Air, presents While the Sun Shines, starring Peter Lawford and Arthur Margitson. Following Theater Guild, keep tuned for the American album of familiar music. Both are part of your great NBC Sunday. This is Fred Collins speaking. And now stay tuned for James Melton and Harvest of Stars on NBC. In 1970, 20 years after this broadcast, Radio City Playhouse star Jan Miner appeared on The Golden Age of Radio, a Hartford, Connecticut-based interview program hosted by Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran. They asked Jan about the difficulty one might have breaking into radio as an actor. Was there uh, much difficulty in breaking into the field, as it were, because, Ed, there were a really a, a small cluster of actors and actresses who participated in most of the major shows. Uh, all these shows were auditioned. They just didn't give the parts out. No. And uh, the, the people were so good 
that they can get the same parts over and over again. You know, the, a small group, where they had the inside track because nobody could beat them. Mm -hmm. They could audition and get the job. And how, how did you hard manage to, break to, to break into that? Well, uh, WTIC was responsible, really, because Gertrude Warner and George Petrie and Ed Begley were all here, and they went to New York, and Tom McRae was here, and he went to New York, so that when I arrived, all of the WTIC people had started mm -hmm. and were working in New York and introduced me to different people and got me at least into some of the auditions. So each one of them really had something to do to help me get going in New York and to tell me what to do. You know, it's, it's not, you just don't know where to go or what to do unless someone tells you. Jan Miner had numerous stage, radio, television, and screen acting credits to her name. And from the 1960s through the 1990s, she was perhaps most famous for playing Madge the Manicurist. That was the spokeswoman for Colgate Palmolive Dish Detergent. Jan Miner also in the 1940s starred as Ann Williams opposite Stats Cotsworth and Casey Crime Photographer. Casey and Ann were crime scene photographers that often helped solve cases for the New York City Police. Each week's story was told in first-person past tense from inside the Blue Note Cafe. The Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation brings you Crime Photographer. <laughs> Happy New Year, Casey. Happy New Year, Ethelbert. Same to you, Marvin. Say, you know this 1948 is going to be a great year. Why so? Well, don't you know? It's leap year. And just what can leap year mean to you? Why, I'm surprised at you, Ethelbert. Don't you know that that means an extra Thursday? So what? So what? That extra Thursday gives me an extra chance to say that Anchor Hawking is the most famous name in class. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tony Marvin. Every week at this time, the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation of Lancaster, Ohio, and its more than 10,000 employees bring you another adventure of Casey Crime Photographer, ace cameraman who covers the crime news of a great city. Written by Alonzo Dean Cole, our adventure for tonight, Hot New Year's Party. Half past nine on the morning of New Year's Day. And to some people, that hour on that day can be very bleak and dismal. Ethelbert, the uh, head bartender of the Blue Note Cafe, is obviously not one of those unfortunates, for we find him in the morning. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Hi, Walter. Yeah, uh, bring up two more bottles of aspirin. They're going to be our best sellers today. Okay. Oh, what a beautiful... Well, look who's here. Happy New Year, Casey. <laughs> and the uh, same to you, Miss Williams. Hmm. What's the matter with you two? Ask Walter to bring us a couple of cups of coffee, pal. Strong and black. Uh-uh. And slip me an aspirin tablet. Make that a double order. Uh-huh. Hey, Walter, draw two. Come on up. What's Herman Chittison doing here? Practicing at this hour in the morning? He couldn't get home on account of the snow. He slept here all night. Oh. Here's some special headache medicine for you to stay out all night. We haven't been stay out all night. I know. Like good, sensible folks, you left the party early, just before daylight. And then you got all of an hour's sleep before you had to come to work on an 8 a.m. shift. He's a wise guy, Annie. Yeah. You should have been like me. I wasn't on duty last night, but did I spend my leisure time in idle revelry? I did not. At 12 o'clock, my sister Edna and me wish one another a happy new year over a glass of good, healthful milk. Mm. Then I retired and enjoyed a fine, refreshing sleep. So, on this beautiful morning, you find me full of vim, vigor, and vitamins. Have another aspirin on the house. Shall I kill this guy quickly and... Listen, Vim, Vigor, and Vitamins, the reason Miss Williams and I feel beat up is that ever since a few minutes after we reported for work this morning, we've been inhaling smoke. 
smoke? There smoke. was another warehouse fire this morning near Chatham Circle. That's the only New Year's party we've attended, and it was a red-hot one, too. Bad fire, huh? Yeah, plenty bad. Oh, here's Walter with our coffee. Oh, thanks, Walter. Happy New Year. <laughs> Boys, it's welcome, too. Thanks, Walter. Okay. Your paper's kind of hinted that them warehouse fires lately have been arson jobs, Miss Williams. Oh, we're morally certain of it, Ethelbert. And that Jake Schultz is the man behind them. He and his mob make a deal with the owners of them places to split the fire insurance, huh? That's right. That's a racket. Hmm. Skinny Jake Schultz is a pretty smart cookie, I hear. Neither the cops or the fire inspectors has ever got anything on him. Yeah, well, if he's buying the torch job we just covered, he isn't so smart. But this one lets somebody in for a hot seat wrap. What do you mean? Well, the fire was set at night and there was a human being in the building, an old watchman. That means arson in the first degree. The watchman got out all right, but a fireman was killed by falling timbers. And when death is caused through commission of first-degree arson, it becomes first-degree murder. And a reliable witness says that he saw three men run out of the warehouse a few minutes before the fire was discovered. He's uh, given the police a first-class description of them. Was one of them Schultz? No, of course not. Jake doesn't do any firebug stuff himself. If one of those three guys is caught and sings, uh, it's just going to be too bad for his boss, man. Annie, how about some more coffee? Mm, no, we don't have time, Casey. No, We've right. got to get out to Barstow College. Well, there's no hurry about that. Yes, there know. is. City desk wants the dope on Professor Wendell right away. Well, who's Professor Wendell and what, what's he doing? Oh, he's a teacher at Barstow College. He went for a walk last night and he hasn't come back. Uh, now, the professor who shares an apartment with Wendell's just reported his disappearance to the Missing Persons Bureau. Well, he thinks the guy has met with foul play? That's right. Now, well, if we must, we must, Danny. Come on, let's get started at Professor Gerber's place. But this Professor Gerber's the one who reported the mysterious vanishing of this Professor Wendell. Huh? That's right. After we waste our time with him, Wendell will undoubtedly show up with a perfectly good reason for staying out all night. Well, I'm perfectly willing to waste time on such cases today. I'd like to start the new year safely and sanely. Me too, Annie, me too. To establish a precedent for 1948, no jams and no trouble, nothing but peace, sweetness, and light. <laughs> Instead of just a hope, why don't you two make that a new year's resolution? Well, that's a good idea, pal. Oh, excellent. We here highly resolve... That for the coming year... And starting now... No jams... No trouble... Nothing but peace, sweetness, and light. New Year's Eve has also been known as a time for reflecting and looking back at the past year. That's no different on the radio. Take the NBC's Colgate Sports Newsreel, for instance, hosted by Bill Stern, who on the evening of December 31st, 1948, at 10.30 p.m., ran a story about the most important sports moment of 1948. Real 2, 1948 in review. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we're broadcasting from Hollywood, California, on this, the last evening of 1948. This is New Year's Eve. In a few moments, 1948 will be just a memory. But before this year does become history... Let's go back and review the great sports stories of the past year. Remember, some of these are legends, others hearsay. Here they are. Stories that you may have heard during this past year. Memories that must not be forgotten on this, the last night of 1948. 1948 passes in review. The biggest story of this passing year was the death of Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, the orphan boy who became the idol of every child, the hero of a nation, the greatest baseball player of all time. Yet, yet, you know, whenever I mention the name of Babe Ruth, I think of a strange story that we told this year, even though actually it was a story that began many years ago. A story that began one day when newsboys were shouting, Extra! Extra! Get your paper! Babe Ruth said! Babe Ruth taking the hospital! Babe Ruth was a mighty sick man that day. He was sick because he'd eaten 30 hot dogs and because he drank 12 bottles of soda pop. Strangely enough, the man who fed Babe Ruth those 30 hot dogs and those 12 bottles of pop was then the Yankee Bat Boy. But the strangest part of this story is that the boy who was responsible for Babe Ruth's illness then... That boy is today playing Babe Ruth's life on the screen. Well, his name is Bill Bendix. The next story we told in 1948 took place on February...
The thriller was another genre of storytelling adept at using New Year's Eve as a plot device. In Escape, a show designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure, protagonists were often put in extreme situations. These stories could range from fantasy to sci-fi to thriller to straight crime to western, and Escape was heard on the CBS airwaves between July 7, 1947 and September 25, 1954. Other than the Richfield Oil Company sponsoring them between April and August of 1950, Escape could never find a sponsor. Because it was a low-budget filler show, it became a rate-paying, creatively open ground for writers, producers, and actors that wanted to push the boundaries with radio as a medium for storytelling. This is an excerpt broadcast from December 31, 1950, entitled The Man Who Could Work Miracles. You, finding life rather dull... Dreaming again of exotic places, wishing you were somewhere else, we offer you Escape. Escape with us now to a placid English village and the company of an equally placid little man who one day shook the world as H.G. Wells told it in his delightful story, The Man Who Could Work Miracles. Now, I might say right in the beginning that I ain't the kind of chap who has a naturally argumentative disposition. Oh, no, quite the contrary. I'm a reasonable man who always takes proper thought before he speaks. and one who has a due respect for scientific truth. Why, I ain't never opened my mouth to utter a word that wasn't a pure, undiluted effect. That's what you say. Howsoever, when a man of inferior intellect, such as Toddy Bemis has showed himself to be more than once, when a man like that insists upon airing his ridiculous opinions in a public place such as the Long Dragon Bar, then I've got no choice but to confound him with the superior knowledge which I possesses. So you say. That's right, so I say. And if you can't contribute nothing but the same three words to this discussion, I'll thank you to admit you're defeated and shut your mouth. Well, now, Mr. Fulfinger. Easy, lads, easy does it. Well, I ask you, Constable. I'm only trying to enlighten the man from the bog of ignorance he's a floundering in, and he keeps coming up with his infernal, so you say. Well, I'm a-wasting me words, that's all. It finds that I've not flowed across this bar the way words do. They're not have retired years ago. <laughs> hey, speaking of half and half... I'll have another of the same if you don't mind, Miss Bridget. Quite well, Constable. By all rights, Toddy Beamish, I shouldn't be wasting my time on you. But out of the goodness of my heart, I'll do it anyhow. Suit yourself. Hmm. Now, let's take, for example, that pint of hail that you're holding in your hand. It's pretty nigh empty. Well, now, supposing, for instance, if that hail was to turn into wine. I never cared much for wine. Always not a gale, bet. <laughs> now, if that hail was to turn into wine, then you'd have a miracle. So you say. So anybody says. Or, or, or take that master padlock on Miss Bridges' cash box. Now, if anyone could open that without a proper key, that'd be a ruddy miracle. You need the long wagon out of this. <laughs> well, perhaps you ain't even aware of the proper definition of what a miracle is, her Mr. Beamish. Well, some is one kind and some is another. In a manner of speaking. If anybody left so much as tuppence on the bar's a tip, that'd be a miracle, all right. Well, be that as it may. But a miracle ain't of one kind or another, oh no. A true miracle is something contrary-wise to the course of nature, done by the power of will. Something what couldn't happen without being specially willed to happen. And miracles ain't possible. That is a lot, is, you know. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say they ain't. It's your ignorance that's talking. Now, look. You see that lamp sitting there on the end of the bar, burning as bright as you please? I'll see it right in there. Well, now, that lamp in the natural course of nature couldn't burn like that if it was turned upside down and hanging in the hair. You say it couldn't. 
Mr. Beamish, do you mean to tell me... All that... right, all right, maybe it couldn't. And if it did, that would be a miracle. Very well. Now, supposing somebody was to come along, let's take me, for instance, and he pointed his finger at that lamp like this and said, Turn upside down. <laughs> now, if it... I can't keep it up there much longer. Oh, remarkable, it's highly remarkable. Uh, stop it now, Mr. Fotheringay. Stop it immediately. That's my official order. Oh, look out, Constable. Look out. There it goes. Oh. 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 Now see what you've done, Mr. Fotheringay. My best lamp chimney. Seen no more than an hour ago. Smashed it. But I, I didn't try to do it. Oh, you know, you might have caught the place afire. Most irregular. And illegal besides, like as not. No more of it now. Do you understand? But I tell you, I didn't mean for you it. You and to... your silly conjuring tricks. But all I done was to point my finger at it like that. Yeah, and stop I... it now. Don't you dare. Well, that's all I've done. In that case, Mr. Fulvingay, you defeat your own argument right out of your own mouth. And how is that, might I ask? If it weren't caused by some form of trickery, then what happened to that lamp was a miracle. Now then, I ain't to hold him with no blooming miracles. Held with him and not, as the case may be, Mr. Fothingay. But you just stood right there and performed a real, true, honest, genuine miracle. <laughs> The greatest name in cereals presents Wild Bill Hickok! Hey, you neighbors, strap on your shooting irons and let's saddle up for another thrill-packed Wild Bill Hickok adventure with Guy Madison as Wild Bill and Andy Devine, that's me, as his pal Jingle. Brought to you by that famous talking cereal, Kellogg's Rice Krispies. Snap, crackle, pop. Today, Kellogg's Rice Krispies, the world's only talking cereal, brings you Wild Bill Hickok. Transcribed in Hollywood and starring Guy Madison as Wild Bill and Andy Devine as his pal Jingles. In just 30 seconds, you'll hear the exciting story, Happy New Year. This boisterous show was the December 31st, 1954 broadcast of the children's western Wild Bill Hickok, which ran on the mutual broadcasting system between 1951 and 1956. It's a much lighter portrayal of Wild Bill Hickok than usually seen, and Hickok's real-life partner, Charlie Utter, was replaced by Jingles B. Jones. Like many other children's programs of the time, the show stressed hard work and choosing right over wrong. Oddly enough, although it only ran for five years, it had two New Year's Eve broadcasts in its short history, the other being this one in 1951. Get them all off their feet before they freeze. All right. What are we going to do, Bill? Start running up the main herd and running them to shelter. This wind gets them, they'll start to drift. Bill, look, it may be too late. Where, where, Krusty? What do you see? That's the main herd at the lower end of the valley. They already started to drift. Yeah. And they're headed for the lake. They'll never stop. The last one of them's drowned. Don't give up yet, Krusty. Maybe we can turn them. Turn them? Turn, turn a drifting herd, Bill? You're crazy. No man alive's ever been able to do that, and many a dead one's tried it. Well, we'll give it one more try, partner. There's got to be a first time. Hi, Bucks. Hi. Jump, your bill's gone local, but we got to stay with him. Ha, ha, ha. You ain't going to try and turn them cows. Bill, you, you can't do it. That lead steer's as big as an elephant and meaner than sin. Why, he'll kill anything that gets in his way. We'll let's see about that, Jingles. You and the rest of the men be ready. If I can turn that big steer, we can drive the herd up in the shelter of those trees. It's too big a chance, Bill. I can't let you do it. Well, you can't stop me from trying, Krusty. Hey, wait a minute. I've got an idea. Jingles, that's a mighty fine red shirt you've got under your coat. <laughs> yes, sir. It's real pretty, ain't it? And it's a real red, too. Yeah. Now, what are you getting at, Bill Hickok? Take it off, Jingles. Take it off? Oh, now, Bill, it's brand new. That big steer might just go for that red shirt. Hurry it up, Jingles. That's it. No jumping icebergs, Bill. I'm freezing. Here, give it to me. 
Thanks. Now put your coat back on. Bill, you're loco. Maybe, Krusty. You just be ready. Come on, Buckshot. Hi, hi. Jump, Joker. Stay out of the way, Jingles. Now you're too hurt, devil. One of us has got to change his mind. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills first took to the airwaves in 1942. It was one of the last radio dramas broadcast during the golden age of radio, helping to shut down the airwaves for radio drama on September 30, 1962. The New Year's Eve prior, they broadcast a play called The Old Man. In The Old Man, time takes on human form. He's going to be given a gold watch and kick to the curb as if it's his forced retirement, and he's not happy about it. Time attempts to flee the office from which he works and accidentally is intercepted by a cabbie and a drunk passenger. All three are brought up to the assistant director's office to sort it out. More than I can say for some around here. Uh, 1961, you got any idea why the chairman wanted us to talk to you? Nope. Unless he got tired of listening to this, this blabbermouth here as much as I did. Well, I... I've been wondering myself. Uh, we're such a clean-cut type, you know? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's because we sort of know more about you than anyone here. I mean, we lived you, you know, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I guess you did. Yeah, and even though this is where you keep time or dole it out or whatever goes on around here, we use it. Sure, you can go to the consumer every time if you want the facts. You know, uh, could be that we know things about you and your job that never occurred to you. Now, you two aren't going to try to soft-soap me into the trash pile, too, are you? Look, uh, we were talking about geriatrics, remember? You bet. Well, I guess there's no worse feeling than being useless, uh, unwanted, or rejected. Uh, you know, too. Uh... Oh, a guy doesn't push a cab around town New Year's Eve if someone like, say, a daughter and son-in-law ask him to stay home and join their party. They want to give a party to get rid of me. Well, that party's going on all over the world. Sure, that's the thanks I get. The appreciation. What have they got against me? Was I that bad? You. What kind of a year was I for you, huh? The worst year of my life. Me? Yeah. My wife and I were always, always going to take this trip, Sam. When we got a little ahead, you know. Oh, sure, sure, man. Then all of a sudden, just a little cold in the chest. I tell you, old man, I won't be sorry to see you go. <laughs> what about you? Oh, me? Well, I don't know how to say this. Uh, go ahead. It's all right, whatever you got to say. Well, I can't remember a better year. Got the brakes all the way, a lot of laughs, my health, the whole bit, you know? Yeah, that's not so bad, is it? Oh, it's fine for him and millions like him. For some other millions like me, even worse off, not so fine. You see, old man... You're not just one year, not just 365 days and nights hooked together. Seems to me you're as many years as there are people, and for each of them, in their own special way, you're, you're a good year or a bad year, or all the mixtures in between. But my job, my record, these highlights... Not yours, old man, people's. The lowlights, too. All you supply is the time. That's not... And when you were young, like this little guy here, you brought hope, too. A feeling that the old slate was sort of clean. We were all starting over. Yep, that's right. 
Kind of get the past behind you all in one lump, and there's a whole new year. You know, to use any way you like. You're, uh, you're not lying to me. For what? I can always use some hope, but I wouldn't make a federal case. People all over the world are looking to say goodbye to you tonight and, and hello to the kid. I'm with them. You know, what if I say no? You got me. Well, we'll see what happens at midnight. You're going to... You're going to tell anyone what happened? Ah, not when I'm sober. Oh, I sure glad I left my cab up there till tomorrow. What you got to do in New York? Get a place to park. Hey, what do you think the old man is going to do? I don't know. Can't say I blame him. You know, I think he's going to pack it in after he thinks it over. Guy talks big, then it comes down to it and he goes along. Yeah, I hope you're right. What are you going to do now? Oh, I don't know. Hey, how about going over to Times Square? Make it just about time for the big blast when they let that light go on at Times Building, huh? Okay. We'll get our answer there. Answer? Whether or not the old man quit. Everyone will, for that matter, even if they didn't know about what happened tonight. Oh, yeah? Sure. You'll see. If, when the whistles blow and the, and the bells ring and everyone hollers, Happy New Year, we get that good feeling of, of hope. Something beginning, better days coming. Everyone all over the world will know. Your man Quiz. Suspense. You have been listening to The Old Man, starring Leon Jenny in the title role, Reynold Osborne as the director. Written especially for Suspense by Bob Corcoran. In a moment, a word about next week's story of Suspense. Going places tonight... Lots of people are, and not everyone will reach his destination safely. Unscheduled stops for many this night of nights will be emergency wards, hospital beds, and the morgue. It needn't be so. Be extra careful, extra courteous, and moderate in tonight's celebration. Suspense is produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Featured in tonight's story were Lawson Zerbe as Joe Walston, Ivor Francis as the assistant to the director, Larry Haynes as the tippler, Ralph Camargo as the announcer, Rita Lloyd as Miss Powler, and Guy Rep as Johnson. Next week we will return with Breakthrough, written by William N. Robeson. Another tale well calculated to keep you in... Happy New Year from the CBS Radio Network. It's important to remember that the birth of network television as we know it happened almost overnight. In 1947, when there were 40 million radios in the U.S., there were only about 44,000 television sets and 30,000 of those were in New York City. NBC had begun broadcasting television in 1944. The Dumont Network, which had no radio affiliates, began in 1946, and CBS and ABC followed in 1948. By 1951, the network stretched from coast to coast. As major clients with big advertising dollars to spend began to invest in television in the 1950s, audiences as well jumped ship. The last dramatic radio broadcast of the Golden Age of Radio occurred on CBS on September 30, 1962. Television killed the American radio drama in just a decade. It's very interesting to listen to radio dramas in the 1950s if you go from the beginning of the 1950s to the end of the 1950s because the budgets and the big sponsors and the big guest stars and any kind of big name attachment, they dwindled down as the years go on. Some of the radio programs that were still on the air in the late 1950s like Gunsmoke they're one of the first programs to be multi-sponsored, where you'd have four or five different sponsors with short commercials scattered throughout, which is something that on television has become commonplace. Prior to that, as you've seen tonight, many of these shows not only sponsored the show, but had their name in the title, much like you might see on a stadium today. Speaking of stadiums, I would be remiss 
if I didn't mention one of the biggest New Year's Day traditions on radio, the Rose Bowl. This is audio from the January 1st, 1953 game which pitted USC against Wisconsin. Well, Brady, we're liable to see that break most any minute. Gulseth is in kick formation standing on the Wisconsin 15-yard line on fourth and six for the Badger. Gets the boot away, he's rushed. Gets it away, nice kick going way downfield to the 22-yard line. It's picked up there by Carmichael. Carmichael coming back to the 30-yard line, to the 35-yard line before he's hit the stop by Stensby. Stensby making the stop along with Amundsen. That's Norman Amundsen from Chicago. Boy, Amundsen, number 60, 195 pounds, Chicago sophomore. Playing for Wisconsin up in the line. Now, let's see. Southern California going on the offense on their own 35-yard line, 15 yards in the sideline on the side of the field. Single wing with Bukic coming way out wide to the right. Rudy Bukic. Bukic is at halfback now with a reverse over to Al Carmichael. The reverse going off the left side of the line, picking up to the 37-yard line. The boy is hit and stopped by Don Voss, the defensive right end of Wisconsin. Ball on the 37-yard line, equidistant between sidelines. And for the Trojans, second down and seven on a three-yard pickup. Up to the line of scrimmage come the Trojans. Unbalanced over to the right up front. Send a wide flanker out to the right on the single wing. Bukic in the tailback. Hands the ball over to Carmichael. A short reverse behind the line of scrimmage. The same play that they worked before for three yards. Bucks over to the 40-yard line as he cracks off his own left tackle on the weak side. Right up to the 40. Falls forward as he's tackled at the 41 with John Dixon, the middle linebacker from Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin, making the stop for the Badgers. The ball is still equidistant between sidelines on the Trojan 41. While the curtain closed for radio drama in 1962, longtime radio producer, director, and writer, as well as native Brooklynite Hyman Brown, petitioned CBS for years to relaunch radio dramas. In 1974, he got his wish and launched the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, which ran between 1974 and 1982. These broadcasts were the equivalent to a television hour, which ran about 45 minutes. But the catch was, although each story was its own separate arc, the show ran seven nights a week, which at that rate guaranteed some New Year's Eve broadcasts. This is the opening and the final clip that I'll play for you. It's Tomorrow's Murder, broadcast originally on CBS Radio for the CBS Radio Mystery Theater on December 31st, 1976. Come in. Welcome. I'm E.G. Marshall. The past is like a funeral gone by. The future comes like an unwelcome guest. The future. The impenetrable, imponderable future. As the song says, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Well, would you like to know? The rest of your life is a book that has not yet been printed. However, would you like an advanced copy? A sort of pre-publication preview? The purpose of the next hour is to make you think about it. Are you sorry you married me? What kind of a question is that? Answer it, Gretchen. It depends on how I feel at any given time. How do you feel most of the time? Most of the time, I'd say I was sorry. Why don't you do something about it? Now that you mention it... I've been planning to. You want to talk about divorce? No. I've got a better way. A quicker way. Right here in my purse. Gretchen. You should know, Harold. Divorce is a sin. Our mystery drama... Tomorrow's Murder was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Sam Dan and stars Robert Dryden. It is sponsored in part by Sinoff, the Sinus Medicines, and Buick Motor Division. I'll be back shortly with Act One. I hope that you enjoyed this look back at the history of New Year's Eve celebrations on the radio. We ran over an hour. Really, that's longer than I've been trying to run, and this show could have run three hours, and that's just on the history of New Year's Eve celebrations on the radio. These shows are meant to intrigue you about a form of art that's on its way back up. 
with the advent of podcasts, successful interview-based podcasts, serial shows like Serial, true documentaries being put out by organizations like Gimlet Media and other podcast hubs, the time for a radio drama revival has never been better. It's just a matter of can you sell it into sponsors? Will you have a high enough value in order to attach some dollars to it? What do you guys think? You who listen to podcasts, would you listen to any of these older radio dramas or new ones? I would recommend checking out Gimlet Media's Homecoming if you're interested in a new radio drama, and also check out Gimlet Media's Crime Town as two new podcast shows that I'd have to get in line to deservedly praise. If you've been enjoying these past episodes of Breaking Walls, I'd love to know. The next episode is number 50. I have something big planned. I've been trying to line it up so that number 50 would be the first show of 2017, and that's where we're at. We're also coming up on the 5th anniversary of the Wallbreakers launch. That will be on February 1st. I hope that tonight and tomorrow you spend the days that bookend 2016 and 2017 doing whatever you most want to do. The fuller that we can live our lives, the closer that we can be to who we want to be internally, the more happiness that we'll be able to absorb for ourselves and give to others, and the more inner peace we'll achieve. It's true. It's a reason to start anew the new year. I believe that in order to begin anew again, we must be willing to be vulnerable. So keep getting out there, guys. Keep breaking those walls. Happy New Year. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 49. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. I will see you soon.